Hey, this is a class. And this is Mecca. And you're listening to Identity Politics, a podcast on race, gender, and Muslims in America, presented by Alt Muslima. Mecca, tell our listeners where they can find us. You can find us on Twitter at Identity P-O-L-P-O-D. You can also find us on Facebook.com slash Identity Politics. Awesome. And don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what you're listening to, you can go to iTunes and give us five stars and write up a quick review on what you think about identity politics. Questions, suggestions, comments, they're all welcome. I don't know, I must have been 13 at the most, probably younger. It was a homeschool conference of all things. And this man saw that I was Muslim, I was wearing hijab, and he knew my parents somehow, I don't really know, but he came up to me and he was like, Salam Alaikum. And I was like, Alaikum Salam. And he didn't look to me as if he was Muslim. Um, and he wasn't. Uh, and he said, are you Muslim? And I said, yes. And he said, are you Shia or Sunni? And I was like, I don't know those words. In my mind, I was <laughs> thinking, I don't know those words. Um, but I, I said, I'm Muslim. And he said, but are you Shira or are you Sunni? And I said, I'm Muslim. And then he said, well, do you believe that Ali should have been the, um, the leader of Muslims after the death of the Prophet? And I said, yes. And he said, so you're Shia. Um, and so this this stranger uh, t- defined my school of thought for me before my, my parents, who had intentionally kind of drilled into us, like, you're Muslim, you're Muslim first, you're Muslim. Like, if people ask you, you're Muslim. Um, so the stranger had kind of defined it for me. So it's not necessarily a coming out in the sense that I knew exactly what was going on, but it was in the sense that I had been labeled. Um, and I... I was uncomfortable with that. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the ramifications of being Shia were. I didn't. I didn't have any of that um, because of you know, kind of my my background and experience of growing up, how I grew up. That was my friend Sarah Abulagid talking about the moment she was labeled not as just a Muslim, but a Shia Muslim. Now, most people in this country don't know anything about Islam, let alone the difference between Islamic sects. But (laughs) there are differences, right, in the way that these teachings have been interpreted over time, practiced, and just how they've evolved over the last, like, dozen centuries. There's Sunni Muslims. There's Shia Muslims. Um, well, I'm probably missing a lot more categories. <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> I wish I could help you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's there's other Islamic religious groups like the Nation of Islam, the Ahmadiyya yeah. community. I mean, how many Muslims are there in the world across? Like, um, oh. I'm going to say like a lot and like a whole lot. <laughs> billions. There are billions. billions of them. <laughs> and yeah. are, are we still? I remember as a kid, um, Everyone like drilling it in our head at school, being like, and we're the fastest growing. We're not just a lot, but we're the fastest growing. <laughs> we're the fastest growing. We love to reproduce. <laughs> um, but yeah, so given that there are so many of us and we are the fastest growing and we are pretty much found in any corner of the earth, the diversity of opinion among us is kind of to be expected. Um, a class, do you remember learning about the differences between the types of Muslims when you were younger and even being like told which group you specifically belong to you know not 
Exactly. Like I'm trying to remember if I had a moment like Sarah where someone was like, oh, so you're a Sunni? Like there have been times where I've been in the back of a cab, right? Um, like in New York or something and the cabbie is Muslim and I might get like, oh, are you Sunni or Shia? Um, and so I just say Sunni. But it, it never really had like a big impact on me, right? Because I, I, I was aware that I was Sunni growing up. I think something more for me was like even just like the different ways of practice within the Sunni tradition um, is something I experienced, right? So thinking mm -hmm. about my own lineage and how I came to Islam, like through my mother, right? Who converted through the nation of Islam and like those teachings. So I feel like the not, I feel like persecution is such a strong word, but <laughs> not the persecution, but kind of like the little side eye or tilt I would get <laughs> um, when I would tell people, you know, that my mom converted or like I was nation of Islam, like there was that prevailing idea that that's not authentic Islam, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way you practice isn't really true to the Islamic tradition. Um, and so kind of like that, feeling that like huge disrespect, right? To yeah. um, like, you know, history of Moorish science temple, the nation of Islam, um, and then... And what they've done for black people in particular. Exactly, right? Like kind of just like throwing all of that to the wayside. Um, and also the, the, the flip side of that, right too. And this happens within the African American Muslim community of just being like, okay, so, you know, thinking about Imam Warthi Muhammad, like it's like now we're in true Islam, like everything that we were practicing before, you know, like let's just throw all of that out. And, you know, I'm, I'm from the belief that we can't throw all of that out, right? Like, mm -hmm. because Islam is a constantly evolving process for everyone, um, and so it's like, like, the, just like this earth, things change. Um, and so, you know, every step that we take is bringing us towards Allah. Um, so I think even just having more science, simple and nation of Islam is a part of that. So I, that's kind of what I got growing up, like a little side. I've like, oh, you're, I mean, you're kind of Muslim, I guess. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah. And it's really hard, like as an adult now. Something that has been important to me is just like identifying a madhab, so like a school of thought to, um, to practice as a Muslim. Um, and so I do choose that madhab within the Sunni tradition. So for our listeners who don't know, so within the Sunni tradition, there are four schools of thought that you can follow. Um, and that just like helps guide your practice as a Muslim, helps you like figure out how to fast during Ramadan, how to pray, um, just like different dietary rules um things like that so just like really super practical and so that's something I've been doing it as an adult that has been really important to me um because I do remember being younger and people being like oh what method do you follow and I'm like uh, I don't know like Atlanta yeah, and why are we also asking this to like teenagers <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> like I don't even know who I am let alone like what method I follow like all I cared about was like what movie I was gonna go see that weekend <laughs> But like going through this class and like shout out to Sacred Service, um, Sheikh Mendez, that's who I've been studying with. Um, it's been just really insightful to thinking about all the different ways that Muslims practice, like not just Sunni and Shia, like within the own Sunni tradition, there are just like so many like things that feel so little, but make so much sense when you're thinking about how Muslims are spread across the world, right? Mm -hmm, and so just thinking mm -hmm. about all the different cultural traditions, like the way people think, the way people act, and like 
palettes you accommodate to all of those things um so yeah that's sorry that was really long (laughs) no no but that's really fascinating because I do think this idea of on the search for true Islam and the exclusion and the power grabs that have happened historically because of that um I mean it's it makes sense. It's human nature, right? Like you want the truth, you want right. the, your value system to be the truth. Um, but it's also human nature to cause some pretty significant conflicts like because of that. And I know for me, when I first heard about Sunnis and Shias, it was mostly in the context of global history. It was in the context of things that have happened in other countries, persecution of Shias. So even when I would hear about the narrative around the Syrian civil war, they would talk about this Shia group controlling this area, this Sunni group controlling this area. And so it the conflation of the religious and the political um, made it really difficult for me to understand like, okay, culturally, theologically, like what do these differences mean? Because it sounded like ethnic groups, Mm -hmm. almost the way that those ethnic conflicts have played out over time. You know what I mean? And so trying to bring that to like my life and like the day-to-day context, I didn't know, like, am I supposed to feel a certain way when Sunnis are being persecuted versus Shias? Like, I don't like, what do those questions really mean? And that's a horrible question to have to ask ask because you know whenever whenever a human being is suffering like we should be speaking out against that injustice um and so yeah that that's just something that i remember being younger and hearing about different conflicts that were happening and that's the only time i really heard like sunni and shia like being talked about like mm-hmm. in that way um but it took a long time for me to even recognize like some of those differences that you were talking about at a, at a personal level. And I, I, was, I have this one story of when I was in college, one summer I lived in a room and I lived in an apartment with a few other girls. Mm-hmm. And one of the other girls was Muslim um, and she would go to the mosque every Friday evening. And so the, um, our third roommate who's not Muslim, just one day just out of curiosity she said you know hey mecca like why don't you ever go to the mosque with her like with our other mate <laughs> don't you hate that though when people call <laughs> yeah, you out they're like, 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 <laughs> yeah they're like hey how come she wears hijab but like you don't like <laughs> i know like i'm just like deer in headlights like <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know it was such an awkward moment because like a yes that like can i live part like i don't even want to talk yeah. about go to the mosque or don't go to the mosque but second I didn't know why she went to the mosque on Friday nights because I grew up going to the mosque on Friday afternoons and I still go to the mosque on Friday afternoons. And so almost to save me, the other roommate who was Muslim said, we're different kinds of Muslims. Mm. Like, gee, we don't go to the same mosque. And wow. she kind of just cut the conversation there. And she was like, I, uh, I can answer this real quick. Girl, after that, I literally was Googling, like, what kind of Muslims go to the mosque <laughs> on Friday <laughs> I also like, love the beginning of that. What kind of Muslims? Like, yeah, who are these people? I was just like, I felt so humiliated and yeah. dumb that like I wasn't educated enough to be able to answer that question. So I didn't even want to go to my Muslim roommate and be like, hey, like, what kind of Muslim are you? Because I didn't want her to be like, oh, my God, this dumb black girl. Like, she doesn't know anything about her religion. Yeah. And then I find out over time that she's Ismaili. Um, which is a sect within the Shia community. Yeah. And so there you go. The more you know. (laughs) No, the same. Like, I only know that because of a friend of mine who's also Ismaili. 
um, where I just was like, what, girl, Friday night, like, <laughs> we're trying to go out to dinner. <laughs> That's what's on and pop it. But yeah, no, same exact, like, story. Like, I had no idea either. It, yeah, and my friend, you know, these differences, they didn't mean much to her because from the outside looking in, she had two Muslim roommates, and that's all that mattered. Mm -hmm. But then on the inside, you start seeing all these little differences and all these little things and become privy to all this, like, drama that you didn't even know existed um, mm -hmm. before someone else, you know, an outside observer is able to to pull that out. Um, and this came out recently in one of the biggest pop culture wins for Muslims in this country. Yes, Mahershala Ali. Yeah. Yeah. My boy. My I homie. Know. Don't, okay, so I was like dying laughing because after he won the Oscar, right? It's like all of these articles like Muslim actor, like wins Oscar, like first Muslim actor, like everyone's like, hey, hey, hey. And then like <laughs> the second. It's like, like 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and then the second batch of articles come in is like, is he a Muslim? Like, uh-uh, he's like not team Muslim. Like, no one's trying to be on that squad. So shady. <laughs> so shady. Mecca, so shady. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, like, the reason that came about is because he is an Ahmadi Muslim. For those of you who don't know, um, Ahmadis are a persecuted group uh, around the world. They are an Islamic religious group, but because of some of their beliefs, they are actually considered outside of the dominant framework of what it means to be Muslim. And so that tends to be a big debate within the Muslim community. Are they Muslim? Are they not Muslim? Do their beliefs put them outside of the fold? If you're interested in learning more about Ahmadis, I encourage you to look it up. We'll also try to put some resources online with this episode. Yeah. Back to Mahershala. Yeah, <laughs> back, to, and back to Mahershala, what we really want to talk about. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I feel like it is these moments, right, though, where people are, it, it just can't be like, oh, yeah, like Muslim actor. It's like, no, wait. So this is when we get down to the nitty gritty of like, what kind of Muslim are you? Um, mm. Which really just like highlights this episode um, that we wanted to do of, you know, is it, can you be just Muslim? Like when you introduce yourself, are you like, oh, you know, I'm just Muslim? Or do you further deline delineate and say, you know, I'm Sunni Muslim? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think in this context, we don't have a lot of space for nuance. So people are like, are you Muslim or not? Yeah. <laughs> and so I say I'm Muslim. And very rarely, very rarely am I asked um, to go beyond that. And when I have been asked to go beyond that, I, I do say that I'm a Sunni Muslim. I, I'm not going to lie, though. There have been times where I'm like, look, I'm just Muslim. Those differences have more of a significance in other places than they do here. But talking to our guest, our guests for this episode really showed me how inadequate that response can be, at least for me personally, and how by saying I'm just Muslim, it kind of erases in meaningful ways the differences between us um, and that make us who we are. Honestly, like talking to our guests, I felt like a white person. <laughs> I totally understand how white people feel when they're like, you know, I don't see color. We're all part of the human race. Like, I was just like, yo, like I had never even considered that I was doing that to someone else. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my God. Can you tell our <laughs> listeners who our guests are today? Oh, yeah. So our guest today, as I mentioned, we're talking to Sarah Abulagid. She's a good friend of mine, former roommate, and she's the community engagement manager at the Family and Youth Institute and also in grad school studying Islamic studies, Christian Muslim relations and Islamic chaplaincy at Hartford seminary. 
we are also talking to another graduate student, Shireen Youssef. She's a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, studying rhetorics, politics, and culture. She's also been a community organizer within the Shia community, and a lot of her work has been focused on how Muslims negotiate their sense of belonging within American Muslim communities. Um, I want to just tell our listeners, don't be afraid to listen to this episode. <laughs> like Neka was saying, like we also are on this journey with you of learning, um, and a lot of Muslims are, right? Like as we just talked about, it's really hard to just like know everything. So have some patience. And for those of you who aren't Muslim or if you are Muslim, there are a few Arabic terms stated in this episode that you may or may not know. Um, so the first one is Muharram, where that is the first month of the Islamic calendar. The only other month in the Islamic calendar that you heard of, that you've ever heard of is probably just Ramadan. <laughs> True. <laughs> but the only month in the Islamic know, right? calendar Everyone's that I know like, exactly when it is every year. Oh, man, it's so important. I know people that like live by the Islamic calendar and like know their mm-hmm. birthdays and like so important. And just so you know, the Islamic calendar goes by it's a lunar calendar. So it follows the moon. Um, and so back to Muharram, um, but Muharram is the second holiest um, and is of major significance, particularly to Shia Muslims who commemorate the death of the Prophet, uh, the Prophet's grandson, Hussein, every year on the 10th of Muharram. So that's that's something important that you would want to know. And the other important thing in this episode is knowing the Ahlul Bayt, um, and that literally refers to the family of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, may peace and blessings be upon him, and Shias believe they're the successors of Muhammad. Um, and that should give you enough to prepare you. Again, we'll have some resources um, online that you can pair with this episode. So in this episode, we ask our guests, is it possible to be just Muslim? Keep listening to hear Sarah Abu Lagud and Shireen Yusuf reflect on Shia erasure and being invisible minorities in the American Muslim community. So when we were deciding to do this episode, I had some super basic questions. I This is a topic I don't know a lot about personally. So I went to one of my closest friends um, to speak to her and know that she wouldn't judge me for my really dumb questions to ask about the difference between Sunnis and Shias, the ways in which they're marginalized, and just to get advice. So shout out to Sarah for always being willing to answer my dumb questions in the kindest and gentlest ways. To the uneducated listener, very briefly, what would you say, like, what is the difference between a Shia Muslim and a Sunni Muslim? Like, how is, how is that difference generally defined? I think there are a lot of different ways you can define it historically. Um, but I think probably if you would go back to the moment where where people can kind of trace the division back to, even though the name Shia and Sunni did not exist at that time, in the in the way that they mean now, would be the time leading up to the death of the Prophet Muhammad and the time right after it. And it's essentially a breakdown in the question of whether or not the Prophet intentionally left somebody to lead after him. Um, and there are other groups within broader Islam that believe that the um, the leadership was passed on and they don't necessarily consider themselves Shia, but they would probably not necessarily follow the same line of history that the majority Sunni narrative understands. 
So there's a lot of history <laughs> packed in there, which I'm sure over time has a ripple effect and then creates a lot of differences in um, the way we end up practicing. I know that as a Black Muslim, when I talk about race, one of the most common dismissive responses I get is, we are all Muslim. Um, but not in the, like, me proactively proclaiming our similarities kind of way, but in a way that almost says, like, pointing out our differences separates, further separates us and, and isn't a part of the sunnah. Um, and I wonder, have you faced similar microaggressions from well-meaning Sunni friends or, or community members, or, or do you ever feel that others are trying to erase your differences for the sake of, of unity? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain things, kind of the differences that you can't ignore. I remember at one point in in Sunday school when I was young, which was a prime, you know, prime. It was a, it was a Sunday Sunday school. I mean, um, here, here's the thing: it was called a Muslim Sunday school, but they taught only a Sunni version of Islam. But that was what Islam was, and if you were anything different than that, it wasn't Islam. And that that I think is the biggest kind of where I grew up. It, it was just it was there was just it was just the Sunni community that we were involved in. Now, currently, in my studies, I've continued to study um, religion, specifically Islam, in, you know, at an institution. And the same thing happens, you know, every almost every class that I have that that is a like a, a an Islamic edu- education-based class. It's like um, there's phrases that always get to me and get under my skin, like Muslims believe. X and if it's something that happened, you know, it happens that like Shias have a different theological understanding of or a, th- a practice, a different practice of, you ca- like why do you have to? Why do you insist on it being all Muslims believe this? You can just say, you know, the majority of Sunni Muslims believe this. Like the caveat includes other people, whereas most people don't know enough to think to add those few pieces, add those few words. To, to like include that oh hey maybe somebody else has a different understanding of this thing I mean that takes that takes a lot of research and education but for me I'm at an institution I'm at a school like I'm, I'm at an educational institution that's teaching Islamic studies I expect I expect more in that space no, I don't necessarily expect more in a Sunday school setting but that's why we dropped out of Sunday school to be honest like we we could my parents could no longer have us go there because we were going home and they'd be like well actually not all Muslims believe this and let, let's do some re-education on it. Like, Shias have a different understanding of history. I mean, we got, I got up until like, I don't know, I can't remember how old I was, but it was not very old when we had, when my parents felt like it w- it was doing more harm than good to be in that space because we were getting a, a, a very like one line of what was Islam um, that did not include our beliefs. Are there any topics that you wish American Muslims were talking about Shia and Sunnis, like any sort of knowledge exchange or fellowship. Um, I just today saw on Twitter that like the Islamic Center of Fresno in California has Sunni Shia like events. Um, and But I know that that's not a thing that I grew up with. It's not something that I've experienced. Um, but is there is there any conversation that you think... Um, the Ummah should be having, uh, just like individually, given the experiences that you've had? I think it is really good to talk about, is our our Sunday school education of history of, of Islam. What we get, and I, I mean, I'm speaking really generally here, but for the majority of people my age, 
my friends who grew up in this country who went to kind of a traditional Sunni Sunday school environment for their Islamic for their Islamic education what you got is not enough for you as an adult like if you if you're trying to be like a practicing Muslim in America you need to know where you came from you need to know your history and I'm not saying that what they taught you was wrong. I'm saying what they taught you wasn't enough. I have so much to learn and I've learned so much just through our friendship, to be honest. And almost the thing that I've learned the most is kind of what you were just talking about, about how little I know. And I remember a few years ago having this epiphany. I think I was in college where I realized everything that I know is because someone wanted me to know it. And that I wasn't just getting any kind of full story. Like people were telling me the history that was most relevant to them for whatever reason. And so I think when I think about this topic and to realize that so much of my religious education is incomplete, it's really, honestly, it's kind of painful and embarrassing because, you know, I'm I'm this Muslim, I work for a Muslim org, and then to be ill-equipped to speak with any kind of legitimacy about the overall Muslim experience, if such a thing exists, or the, the the different experiences that we have, it really, it cuts me deep. So inshallah, you know, this is the first of many conversations I can have about this. I'd love any resources if you wanted to share. Um, but just before we sign off, do you have any other advice for me as I undertake this topic? Any common sheophobic traps that I perhaps should seek to avoid yeah I mean I think just like I was saying before just putting in your language that there is no really like all there is no uh, no sentence should start all Muslims believe um you really have to kind of caveat it um and also uh I think one of the biggest things um well yeah one of the biggest traps that I think a lot of people fall into is this whole concept of like I mean these false narratives of like there are there are four schools of thought, you know? That's a common refrain in, in everything. And it's like, no, there are four, now currently four Sunni schools of thought. And there is a fifth uh, Sh- Jafari school of thought that's recognized by, like in, you know, I'll give you, this is the thing I wanted to look up. <laughs> 1959, Al-Azhar, an Al-Azhar scholar, um, Sheikh Jaltout, uh, gave a fatwa saying like the there are five schools of thought that we the you know predominantly at that point in history Sunni establishment uh, give the green light to and in uh, the jo- the Jafari Madhab was one of them I mean and and we can't like is there is no Shia there's no just one Shia like there are there are as many Sunni options as there are just multiply that exponentially for Shias and 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 we can't I mean I I could I can't get in I mean I don't even know enough about all of that um and and the and what that looks like now and what that looks like in America and the different like the different everything is it's just it's way more complicated than you know once you it's a Pandora's box like once you open it so 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 as you as you open the door to like the Shia experience recognize there is not just one Shia experience. (laughs) 
For this episode, we also sat down with Shireen Youssef, a doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison studying rhetoric, politics, and culture. We sat down with Shireen to talk more about how Muslims are negotiating their sense of belonging within U.S. Muslim communities. Thank you so much. I always start every episode with thank you so much for being on the podcast. But gratitude is important. And I know that you're a busy person. And um, it just means a lot that you would come and have this conversation with us. First of all, thank you guys, because I think it's important to extend gratitude this way as well, um, for hosting like the show and for like having me on. It's actually um, quite an honor. So thank you very much for that. And Shireen, it was your birthday yesterday. That's what Facebook was telling me. Yes, it was. Oh, that's <laughs> so exciting. Happy oh, thank you. Did you do anything? Yeah, I went out to dinner with some friends. Um, my best friend surprised me. She lives in California, and she surprised me with, like, a breakfast delivery. Ooh. So that was, like, probably the best, like, highlight of my day. Wow. <laughs> it was, like, yeah. That's a really so, smart gift. I never thought about that. And then, that's what I thought, too. It was, like, you were there to take care of me, even though you weren't actually there. <laughs> And I love that. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm definitely Googling that. I need to do that. (laughs) Just for yourself. Seriously. Yeah. Shereen, I also don't think we've ever met uh, in real life. Have we? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan on the internet. Oh, you. Same, actually. (laughs) Believe me, it's mutual. So this is great. We're like very grateful and excited that you're able to chat with us today. We talked to Sarah Boulogrid earlier and asked this question about, you know, how she introduces herself, whether it's it's just as a Muslim um, in non-Muslim settings or Muslim settings, whether she ever feels the need to uh, identify as a Shia Muslim and, and when she makes that decision. I'm wondering, Shireen, you know, how do you choose to identify yourself and, and do you differentiate between when you introduce yourself as a Muslim versus a Shia Muslim? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. I think that... For me, it's very similar to what you said, you know, like, um, you know, choosing when to make that decision of like, when to when to distinguish yourself as Muslim versus like a Shia Muslim, I feel like predominantly with like non Muslims, um, I have a tendency to like, I have a tendency, let's put it this way, I have a tendency to be Muslim in like, uh, be very open about my Muslimness in non-Muslim spaces and very open about my Shia-ness in Muslim spaces. If it comes up, then I will talk about my Shia-ness in Muslim spaces as well. Um, but for the most part, I tend to be like very unwavering and be like very open about my Shia-ness. Um, and so like, I feel like, you know, because I'm a hijabi as well, like I'm visibly Muslim. And so in a sense, when I'm in non-Muslim spaces, I almost can't help it. You know, like, uh, you know, if the topic of Muslims comes up or Islam comes up and there's an inaccuracy, something that's being said that's not true, I almost feel the pressure a little bit more um, simply because everyone in the room will know that I'm Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. I think that it's a little bit different when you're with all Muslims because, you know, there's nothing like a dead giveaway that I'm Shia. Um, my name isn't doesn't particularly signal any sort of Shia-ness or anything like that. So I think that the moments to kind of quote unquote come out as Shia in those spaces uh, it's kind of a really careful decision of like um, you know how vulnerable am I going to be if I bring that up am I around people who are going to be receptive to my Shia-ness or like you know is this a place where I can actually foster a dialogue and be part of a dialogue Um, so that's kind of the way that I navigate that.
I do have a follow-up question. I mean, you are someone who is very a lot of your like academic career um, and the things that you've written about have been about the experiences like of, of the Shia community. Um, and I know you just in conversations or Shia communities, let me not even say that as if it's one thing. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I do wonder, you know, are there particular moments um, growing up or just in your, your, in the time that you've come of age, that it became very clear that you needed to be more open about the experiences of the communities um, that you come from. What yeah. what triggered that shift for you? So, okay, so the thing is like, you know, I, I feel like it's, it is kind of similar to growing up Muslim in non-Muslim, like in, for example, the United States, right? Where like you constantly grow up with a acknowledgement and a recognition that you are different, you know? And I actually, I feel like always grew up with that as well, that like, not only am I Muslim, but I'm, I am a Shia Muslim, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, um, it was always something that I was like super conscious of, um, growing up. And I think I've always been this way. I don't know why I've been this way, but like, I, I feel like I've always, um, wanted to be very public about it or, or like not really hesitate to be, uh, too public about it. And, um, I think those moments, like they kind of just, they do have a tendency to come up organically, right? So for example, if you're at an MSA event during Ramadan and we're like all opening our fasts, um, you know, like we have a different Maghrib time, um, and we kind of understand sunset, I believe a little differently. So I remember these moments when we'd be at an MSA event and someone would be passing around the dates for us to open our fasts and everyone would be opening it up and I would just be holding on to mine, you know, and people would be like, Hey, you should eat your day. You can eat now. You can eat now. And like, sometimes it would be like super aggressive and I'm like, okay, thanks. But I, I would keep it in my hand. And there'd be moments where it was like, okay, listen, I can't open my fast yet. You know, like I still have 15 more minutes, you know, go for it. And then I think the other moments are kind of just like, like they, they just tend to be coincidental, right? Like we're in the bathroom doing wudu and <laughs> they see that I'm doing wudu differently. Um, or that like we're in prayer and, um, you know, I'll have my thorba, right? The piece of clay that we pray on. Uh, with me. And when that gets pulled out, then all of a sudden the questions kind of follow suit, mm -hmm. you know? So sometimes it's not like I really have to go out of my way. It just happens because of the fact that we are sharing space and practicing, you know, um, practicing Islam in these ways. Um, so, so yeah, I think some of them is just like kind of coincidental. Uh, other times I do think that it comes up kind of the way, like I keep drawing parallels with the Muslim experience because, you know, you kind of choose um, like what moments to, to bring it up. And so sometimes when you're just like kind of having general conversations with other Muslims and somebody brings up like, oh, I heard that in Islam, you're not allowed to do this, you know, and then you kind of push back with, okay, well, what madhab do you follow? Because is that true across all madhabs, you know, right. and then right. kind of just like generate conversation that way. Um, and if I feel like up for it, then yeah, I will. And I think like the decision to, be very open and vocal about that and to engage in those conversations has actually changed over time. Uh, I think when I was younger, I was much more passionate. <laughs> and so like, I was always willing to take it on. Um, probably very similar to my Muslim experience as well as being like, I'm going to be unapologetically Muslim and like, mm -hmm. you know, always bring up Islam everywhere and everyone will <laughs> always like yeah, Islam, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think as I've gotten older, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, maybe if I can take a step back, maybe I don't have to put the burden on myself. You know, that's kind of just shifted over time. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it's, it's it's a mix of 
they kind of just coming up organically. It's not like we're just talking about something random and then I'm just like, oh, by the way, did you know that Imam Ali did this one? (laughs) (laughs) Just finding different moments to throw it in there. (laughs) Just sprinkle it in there. Sprinkle it. Like salt (laughs) bay. Um, That's kind of a long-winded answer, but yeah. (laughs) Hearing you speak to this, like, I remember growing up, I would just be like, oh, you know, I'm I'm just Muslim. Like, not really thinking about the privilege that I carried in that, right? Like, I didn't have to sit in circles and be like, oh, is someone going to ask me, you know, like, why are you praying that way? Or why do you do that? Um, And I I was somewhere recently in a circle of Muslims where someone was talking and they were saying, oh, you know, like, I I don't go by, you know, Sunnah, like Sunni, Shia, like, I'm just Muslim. And I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking back because that, (laughs) you know, that's what I was taught growing up. Like, you know, we don't we don't get involved in all of that. We're just Muslim. And as I've grown older, I've kind of realized that there's some privilege in that. And I keep telling myself, like, no, it's fine, right? Because we're just Muslim. Like, we're all trying to follow the sunnah of the prophet and not thinking about how that manifests in so many different ways. And I'm curious, like, I'm, I'm sure, Shireen, you probably have been in these spaces, too, where people have been like, oh, you know, I'm just Muslim. Like, how do you respond to things like that? I mean, it's pretty much exactly what you just said. Like, uh, I have a tendency to be like, OK, that's totally fine if that's how you identify. Um, and I understand. But also kind of recognize that the ability like there is there is a default way of practicing islam that like you know um you know i don't think for example like when you say i don't identify as sunni shia like sometimes i'll hear people say like i I pray with my hands folded and with my hands down you know Mm -hmm. or i you know like kind of mix around with their practice as well and so they kind of like um still identify and i've got a lot of close friends that are like that as well you know and so i i get that um but I think it's kind of like a moment where I do remind that like them of the reason why some Muslims do identify as explicitly Shia, especially, um, or any sort of like other non-dominant madhab. Um, mm-hmm. Because like, you know, um, for us, it's it's not a matter of, because I, sometimes I feel like, let's put it this way, sometimes I feel like that saying that remark and making that remark is kind of like a pushback against divisiveness right it's like it doesn't matter for Sunni or Shia we're all Muslim right Right. and the thing is like I I feel like one thing that's so beautiful about our faith tradition is that we do allow for different interpretations and different views so Mm -hmm. like you know claiming to be Shia openly is not like being divisive and that's the thing that's I think really um you know it's in that moment you kind of have to remind folks And, and again they're not always saying that they don't always have that attitude of like trying to say like, oh, you're, when you say you're being Shia, you're being divisive. Um, but, you know, just kind of pushing back and, and reminding folks that like, if you say and you identify with a particular madhab, and it's very different to identify with being, as, as being Sunni versus being Shia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like, you know, Ismaili or Ahmadiyya or, or any of those different uh, madhabs. Uh, because like, yeah, you know, for us, it's, it's uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that we do exist. And um, our, our interpretations uh, of, you know, the Sunnah of the Quran, we draw attention and we draw scholarship from like different sources and a myriad of different sources. Sometimes it's the same sources, but like, you know, I, I always prefer the word madhab, which means school of thought as opposed to sect, because right. it kind of points to that, you know, like we have this beautiful scholarship, you know, and kind of like wanting to own up to that and recognize like, hey, if you're, you know, 
I feel like this tension sometimes comes up. This is a really weird example, but like, you know, when different folks have different dietary restrictions about the meat that they can eat. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes I'm in these spaces where folks are just like, listen, you know, you can eat this chicken because it's halal and it's not Zabiha. I don't know. I think that's a big thing in Chicago. <laughs> like, I don't know. But like, I always push back on that. I'm like, why does it matter if like somebody doesn't have a different like dietary restriction because of their madhab? You know, like they practice Islam a little differently. Right. Why can't we just respect those differences as opposed to trying to like say that you're creating division because of it? Yeah. And I, I think that's a thing, right? Like, even though the intention isn't to claim divisiveness, it's perceived as that. And I know, so I, I you obviously have done a lot of work um, around like the idea of Shia phobia, right? Um, and so I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners may not even know what Shia phobia means, right? I mean, it's a good question. I, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Yeah. Um, like for me, I kind of see Shia phobia as like, um, and by the way, I like, I don't, I haven't, I haven't done extensive research on this. Like I don't claim to be a scholar on um, like sectarianism by any means. So like, I'm definitely, like, I don't see myself as an expert, you okay. know, but, but just as somebody who's like kind of interested in these like intra-Muslim relations as well. Um, and, you know, my, my research interests are actually kind of even more broadly just on how Muslimness is conceived within Muslim communities. So like, I think when it comes to uh, Shia phobia, I personally use that term um, instead of sectarianism because I feel like when we use the term sectarianism, it kind of connotes this like equal sort of like, sometimes there are moments of anti-Sunni sectarianism. Sometimes there are these moments of anti-Shia sectarianism. You know, for me, Shia phobia connotes like a recognizing the disproportionality of anti, like aggression against Shia Muslims as opposed to like aggression against Sunni Muslims. So this is to say that like, yeah, of course there are these moments where Sunni Muslims are being targeted by Shia Muslims. That's That that form of sectarianism absolutely exists. Um, but I think that there is a disproportionality in terms of like, not only um, in terms of numbers, um, but also in terms of like the modes in which Shia Muslims are targeted. So um, I'm thinking about not just like these moments of when Shia Muslims are targeted, for example, on like on Ashura, right, the 10th mm-hmm. of Muharram, um, but also like the way that their mosques are targeted in, you know, certain places, like for the past few years, you know, you've seen instances in like Kuwait or Saudi Arabia or, you know, um, there's also like moments of Shia scholars being targeted um, uh, in different parts of excuse me, in different parts of, like, the Middle East, you've got anti-Shia policies in, like, places like Egypt and Malaysia, you have, um, you know, like, uh, probably the most, like, the one that, for some reason, I feel like doesn't get talked about as much is um, the destruction of these Shia places where, like, significant figures are buried. So, for example, um, Samara, Iraq, or or Samara, I'm sorry, Um, and also in, like, you know, the most prominent is the one in the Bucky Cemetery in Saudi Arabia, which is where it's believed that, you know, the Prophet's daughter is buried, um, you know, for 12 years. She has, it's like four of our imams are also buried there. And it's like, I don't know if you've ever been to Medina, but like, it's literally right across from where the Prophet Wasallam is buried. And it's just this huge, like, like burial plot that's just been completely floored, you know, and now it's like those very, like, beautiful figures that we respect and love so much, just like, or it feels like they're very disrespected, you know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of unfortunate. Like, I don't want to go too off topic from the question, but like, it's really unfortunate that like these, um, 
like the destruction of these places have been associated with like Shias, because I think it's kind of a loss to all of cultural heritage, like Islamic cultural heritage when that happens. Um, but yeah, so like, when I look at Shia phobia, I kind of demarcate that as like looking at the broader, you know, um, disproportionalities. And also, I tend to like identify it as something that's kind of more contemporary, like, um, so it's not like I'm, I'm not thinking about like Yazid as a Shia phobe, for example, just like, you know, drawing it all the way back then. I tend to demarcate it as more like post-modernity, post-coloniality. Um, Given the many ways in which Shia phobia has manifested itself throughout the Muslim world, throughout all of the places that you've mentioned, um, one, of the, one of the topics that we're really interested in, obviously, is Muslim life in America, right? And I think that's also something that you're interested in and, and I've heard you write about and talk about. So in what ways um, does Shia phobia manifest itself in an American or a North American context? Because I know growing up when I learned about Shia phobia or Shia oppression or any of those things, it was very bloody, very violent, very like huge systemic ways um, in which uh, those communities were marginalized. And so I guess my question is, are there more subtle ways um, that that, plays out in, in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in, in the U.S., and that's a fantastic question, um, in the U.S. and in North America more broadly, um, perhaps even in Western Europe as well, I feel like the, like, it is more subtle, um, and it kind of, like, uh, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, too, <clears throat> that, like, you can kind of tell when, like, that there's, like, a Sunni norm, and that, like, you know, um, like when you're not like the default identity, then these Muslim spaces and even to a large extent, Muslim organizations are not accessible to the needs of Shia communities um, and like Shia concerns. So one of the kind of very typical examples that I use is like when you go to like a Muslim prayer space, whether that's like at a campus or um, some other place, right? The fact that they don't have those thurbas or those pieces of clay to pray on. Um, but they'll have like a compass. They'll tell you which direction north is, right? So clearly, they're accommodating to Muslims, but a particular type of Muslim. Um, I think that, like with Muslim organizations, it's been, it's it's really interesting the like choices of what issues become the concerns and issues of all of the Muslims, um, and what gets taken up as like, okay, we're gonna do a fundraiser for this. We're gonna like educate people about this. Yeah. So. There was, I, I remember I attended this, I was at a Sunni, I went to a Sunni mosque um, to attend a fundraiser for, I think, Palestine or something. Um, and I wanted to like, and, and I think honestly, the Shia community would have been interested in kind of helping out as well. But I spoke to one of the organizers of this group, and they just were like, oh, we didn't even know there was a Shia community out here, wow. you know. So there's this like, connection of like, okay, on the one hand, Shia communities are being neglected because a like there's just, there's no outreach to the Shia communities. And when I've spoken to some organizers, they're also kind of like, well, we don't know that they exist, so they have to come find us sort of thing. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's so, and like Shia communities sometimes, you know, because they don't feel included, don't really have the incentive to go out and reach out to those communities either, you know, or to those organizations either. So, um, and, and what I mean, by the way, I guess I should probably provide like a specific example of like these moments of inclusion and exclusion is like, you know, when we see like Muslim organizations rallying around like Palestine, which they should be, or around Syria, which you know they should be, but like neglecting like 
Yemen or like during the um, the whole like Arab Spring, the fact that like Bahrain was so it felt like so blatantly ignored in comparison to the other countries mm-hmm. um, that were you know going through these very important social movements, you know, and and even like you know when people aren't talking about like target killings in Pakistan, right? Like these are targeted killings against Shia Muslims um, and also Ahmadiyya Muslims, right? So like these moments where it's like when when all Muslims, for example, are being targeted, or let's say it's a sh- like a Shia regime that's targeting Sunni Muslims, right? Mm-hmm. That becomes like the movement for all Muslims mm-hmm. in the U.S., right? But when are, when it's like particularized, like Shia Muslims are being targeted, or Ahmadiyya Muslims are being targeted in Pakistan, then it's not for like the whole community, you know. And I think it's in those moments where it's like, okay, well, if we don't belong, <laughs> you know, um, it's 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 difficult to think about like organizing and working alongside other groups yeah. and having the incentive to do that, right? Because if we're always going to be treated like we're on the margins and we're not part of the broader Muslim community, then then we have to look out for ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You'd think we'd be a little bit further along with that, given how much the conversation has been about intersectionality, has been about interfaith yeah. efforts. And it's like, if we're so good at, at working alongside people who don't necessarily like believe in the same ways that we do, why is this so much of a problem like within our communities? Like that, it's so, it's mind boggling to me. People are really sensitive. And you know, a part of me kind of does get it. You know, like sometimes it's easier to like go up to someone and be like, listen, you believe what you believe, right? Like, so, you know, like, yeah, right? Like, even like somebody who just like does not at all believe what you believe, it's easy to just be like, listen, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and that's it. But I feel like with intral Muslim relations, it's always been about like, you know, you believe what you believe, but that is not what I believe, you know? And there is this like fervent like need to, to distinguish that. And, you know, and this is like, we have a different history too with that, you know, like, um, I think there's a lot of like, yeah, like, I, I think that we're also instructed to talk about sectarianism, right. And, um, sort of these, like, we don't, we don't talk about it as madhabi relations. We talk about it as like sectarianism and we talk about it in ways that are just like, like who created a division and like, you love this person, but we hate this person. And like, you know, and it's just, it's when it gets caught up in that, people just don't even want to deal with it. And they reduce all of like mudhub relations to like those, those moments, you know? And I think like, there's a very, like a broader social implication that we don't consider. Um, and we don't like think about like how powerful, for example, the fact that we all believe in Tawheed, right? Like the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We don't think about how powerful, like the shared love that we have for Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa is, you know? So it's really interesting how much gets erased in the process of like focusing on those differences, which I'm not against talking about those differences, but, you know, using that to like stifle that and, and you know what I mean? Like create more division. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. Omid Safi has this book, Memories of Muhammad, and um he has this part where he talks about, you know, tell me your connection to the prophet and I can tell you what kind of Muslim you are. Uh, something I've often noticed is that um, Shia relationships to the prophet وسلم, and the Ahlul Bayt um, is a very deep emotional connection than I, that I've personally oh. seen um, other Sunni, Sunnis carry, right? And so mm-hmm. just thinking about the significance of that relationship and like why, why it matters. Yeah, I mean, like, and I, I almost brought this up earlier when you guys asked that question about, um, you know, how to, like, be Shia in these, like, 
in these spaces and knowing when to bring up your Shianas. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like part of that is, um, it, part of that is like, I feel like I was, I was taught from a very young age and I don't know if this is getting at what you um, are trying to get at as well, Ikhlas, is like, um, like we have been kind of taught, or at least I have been taught, you know, to, to recognize that like what makes us distinct is our love for the Ahl Bayt, right? And I've met, yeah, it's true, I've met a lot of Sunni Muslims who also have a lot of love for Ahl Bayt. But it's this idea that, like, you know, the Shia Muslims, because we have been unwavering in our love and um, vocal about that love, that has sustained the memory of the Ahl Bayt in the consciousness and in the minds of the Muslim world in general, you know? And it's kind of like that sort of thing that we kind of take on, um, that that kind of pushes at least me to be like vocal about it. Right. And to constantly, like when I think about what, um, what has differentiated me, at least like growing up uh, as a Shia Muslim from like conversations I've had with, with folks who, you know, don't identify as Shia, whether they are like Sunni or just, you know, identify as simply Muslim. Um, it's, it kind of goes back to this, um, this relationship of being like, you know, do you know the, the, the role that the Ahlbaits play for us. And I've actually heard a scholar once describe it as they are like the inheritors of the Sunnah, you know? So after Prophet Muhammad's death, we look to them to understand like how would the Prophet behave in this particular scenario? And what would, you know, we know that the Prophet, for example, was like the walking Quran, right? right. So we have an understanding of the Quran too in that particular moment. I think the other thing that people really um, fight about is like the degree to which we love them and how that's construed as like we're elevating their status to the point of like making them godlike and then when we do that we're you know we no longer believe in one god and you know like and I've heard really crazy things like I don't like to use the word crazy but like you know so I, I should probably take that back but like it was like things like you know um yeah, like things about like how we worship Ali and like how, you know, like whenever, whenever I ever take out my thurba, um, when I was praying, like, don't you, don't you feel like you're worshiping that? Like, no, I don't, you know, like mm. things I didn't even think about, you know, so. Um, yeah. yeah, and I know that I'm thinking about some conversations that I've had with Sara. One of the points that she made, she was like, you know, her as someone who comes from a Shia community, she knows what to look for, right? Like she knows the signs. And for a lot of people, she was like, what she's realized is there's just such a, an ignorance. Um, and I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, but just a lack of knowledge about the different ways that people's practices can look um, and the reasonings behind that. And that yeah. there's just so like you, if you're in a masjid and you see mm-hmm. someone with the clay and or praying with their hands in a different way or you just you, a lot of people are like, oh, I just want to correct you because there's a right way to do this not even recognizing that no um that that's not it's not as cut and dry as as the way that you think and so this this lack of knowledge I think um you know it's something that's really pervasive and I'm just going to talk about myself because you know I went to Islamic schools quote-unquote Islamic schools growing up I received an Islamic education I learned about like what it means to be Muslim and so it becomes really easy like a class was saying at the beginning of the conversation to just say I'm just Muslim without actually interrogating or understanding that 
you are learning like something as the ultimate truth and not even understanding like how expansive and diverse that truth is. So yeah, just hearing you talk, it's making me reflect on my own lack of knowledge and my own ignorance and the moments in which I've been gently corrected or admonished by some like well-meaning, you know, sister at the masjid. Um, (laughs) And, you know, in those moments, not necessarily having the, the, the gusto to be like, actually, well, actually, there, there are a lot of different ways that we can do these things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just going to quickly insert that, like, these, it's interesting how these, like, hegemonies kind of work, too, because, I mean, I'm, I'm a 12-er Shia Muslim, and I think in a lot of ways, it exists even amongst the Shia Muslims, right? Like, so when people say Shia, they kind of, like, there's a default, that's 12-er Shias, but then it kind of erases all the other, like, Bori Shias, or Zaydi Shias, or Ismaili Shias, you know? So, yeah, there's definitely, like, varying degrees of that too so I just wanted to throw that out there did you attend an Islamic school or Sunday school or anything like that I I did attend a Sunday school yeah Yeah. I don't know if your Sunday school is like Shia or oh yeah was it oh (laughs) you're like um I'm good (laughs) well I guess in your Shia Sunday school yeah was it I don't know it's so weird to think about because if you're going to Sunday school your parents are sending you there because they want you to gain a certain type of information right so I'm curious in your Shia Sunday school was it similar to like Sunni Sunday schools right where you are just going to be learning about Sunni practice um and not being exposed to Shia so I'm wondering in your Shia Sunday school was it similar in the fashion that like Uh yeah we're not going to really focus on Sunni is like that's not what we're here today for (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> this is kind of funny. I hope it doesn't get awkward. But like, no, 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 <laughs> I think there were moments where, you know, I felt like there were a lot of moments in, in just, I don't know if it was like explicitly in class or what, but I feel like I walked away, like knowing like, okay, we don't believe what the Sunnis believe, you know, mm-hmm. and this is like A, B and C. This is how we know that we are different from from Sunni Muslims, you know, and I don't like, Again, I, I can't remember like if it was like explicitly instructional or if it's just like something that I just walked away with. But like I always knew that I was different um, from Sunni. Like, we didn't like really learn about the Sunni tradition. I think we only it was really only brought up when we were like distinguishing something that we believed from what you know Sunni Muslims believed. Yeah. And and this is particularly the case when we're talking about Islamic history, mm-hmm. um, like classes on Islamic history, where it's like okay, listen, you might hear that like this happened, but this is actually what happened, you know? Mm. So, um, so like in a sense, uh, yeah, like we, we were kind of exposed, I think, to understanding that we are separate from Sunni Muslims and that, you know, we had conversations about the Sunni tradition that I'm, you know, fairly positive that didn't exist in, you know, Sunni, Sunni schools. All that to say, I don't know, like what the effect of that is, you know, when, when the only thing that, the only time that the Sunni tradition is being brought up is in that sort of juxtaposition and that sort of like, you know, that sort of tone, especially mm-hmm. with children. So like, um, you know, I think I, I kind of grew up a little differently and, um, you know, I kind of grew up with a, with a somewhat of a diverse family here and there, you know? Um, and so like, I, uh, I, I remember seeing, let's put it this way. I just, I remember seeing folks within my community, like, growing up with a sense of hostility towards Sunni Muslims as well, you know, um, and part of that could be because of, because of that, you know, um, yeah. which isn't to say that, like, it's inaccurate, like, it's not, like, we do have different interpretations of history, you know, but it's like a, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it makes me think about how we're carrying this history, right? 
that is ours, but also not ours, right? Like we weren't on the battlefields. We weren't um, there during that time where it's like, yeah, you're going to be super hostile to someone you have to see on the battlefield. But we're all still carrying this history that we are Mm -hmm. deeply connected to, right? We all share and love for the prophet and his family. But then we take that love and kind of make it a little hostile, right? Um, And so it's very difficult to navigate. And it's something that I haven't quite wrapped my head around um, of like, how how do we stay attached to that history and recognize that history, but then strip the hostility that comes Mm -hmm. from that, Um, Mm -hmm. which I think is something very, very difficult to do because we keep filtering it through our schools right of like yeah you're different but also let me tell you the right version of history um, yeah <laughs> which which it's so messy um but it's something that we're all so attached to um yeah. that and and so when i when i hear things like that and i think about my own history i get why people will say like i'm just muslim right to try to like mm-hmm. distance yeah. themselves from that but also knowing that that isn't the right answer either yeah it's a, a different kind of erasure <laughs> yeah. right yeah and and you can kind of see too like like why a statement like that could be like especially for shia muslims like that's an erasure of that history you know like so much of the lives of um our imams at al in general were that of being marginalized and suppressed you know mm-hmm. so like um so yeah like when when that sort of like talk like how, how do we relate to our history or um, how do I identify in relation to that? Like, I, I almost feel like hi- history is such a big part of this conversation, you know, mm-hmm. and how is it that we're looking back and how are we taking it on um, and how are we interpreting it from our own perspective today? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, I think as we're talking, I'm having this meta conversation and interpretation in my head because we could be talking about white supremacy. Yeah, we could be talking about <laughs> patriarchy. <laughs> we could be talking about Islamophobia. For like sure. we look across the board at different forms of marginalization that just the people in this conversation like face and and deal with on a day to day basis. And it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier about how we do interfaith and then intra faith is super hard. Mm-hmm. But you know, even thinking about that moment or series of moments where it's like here are the ways in which were different it reminds me of these um commercials we've been saying about like the talk lately like the talk that black parents have with their kids and the talk that you know muslim parents are now having with their kids about you know you are different and the way people perceive you will be different and here is how you should be prepared like to do those things so i'm just really struck by the ways in which like different forms of marginalization like young people have to be prepared to face those. They have to know so much more about the dominant groups than the dominant groups have to know about them. Um, And it's, yeah, I'm just really struck by some of those themes that have carried throughout vastly different um, social circumstances. For sure. And Mecca too, it's making me think about our our last episode where we talked, well, so Shreen, I don't know if you had a chance to listen, but we talked about finding your ancestry and just going through your family history and connecting as descendants of um, African slaves. And it's it, this whole conversation has me, I, I'm in no means a like, psychologist or therapist, but I, I also can't help but think about needing this period of like healing, right? I, I don't think we've really had a chance as a community as we are today to like, I personally don't see conversations happening, conferences happening on offering opportunities to just like 
heal and resolve and really reflect on what happened um, within our Muslim history and how do we repair that? How do we improve relationships? Like, I don't see that on the forefront of like anyone's agenda, at least in my knowledge. Um, but yeah, I think that conversation is just about, about being interfaith. And I think the same thing happens within black Muslim communities, right? Like we're a community that is <laughs> often ignored, um, but now is seeing recognition because I, I mean, just like pushing ourselves forward. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really see those conversations happening. And it's it's really a shame that it's not. Like, and th- this is something that I want to make sure that like I express um, while this platform is available. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Uh, and, and I think like, and this is kind of where I think the conversation is going anyway. But like, for me, one of the most powerful moments has been like, um, like how much... Like, I, and, I, and I do get this question, I've gotten this question before about, like, what can we do, like, to connect with the, like, the Shia community more mm-hmm. and stuff. And, like, I feel like one of the easiest things to do, and it might even, like, have this effect of being restorative in the way that you're talking about, um, is just to, like, recognize how important the first 10 days of Muharram is uh, for, for Shia Muslims. Um, I remember, like, uh, like, so obviously the 10th of Muharram itself is like the day of Ashura. It's the day that we often come together as a community and grieve and mourn, uh, for the death of Prophet Muhammad's grandson. And I don't know how familiar you all are with like the story and what happened. It yeah, seems so to be most familiar will, with it. Yeah. I yeah. will say we are, but for our listeners, we have a lot of folks that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So, um, Basically, like during the time of Prophet Muhammad's grandson, or, or sorry, during the time that uh, Prophet Muhammad's grandson lived, his name was uh, Imam Hussein. Um, he was the son of Imam Ali, um, and we use the term Imam, by the way, to like connote like a like a leadership after Prophet Muhammad's death. This is kind of one of the major distinctions between Sunnis and Shias. Um, is like this belief that there has been um, a system of guidance and leadership that followed the prophethood, right? And so. Um, we believe that Imam Ali, for example, Ali ibn Abi Talib was the um, was the first Imam, and his son Imam Hassan was the second, and Imam Hussein was the third. So, um, you know, Imam Hussein during lived during a time when uh, Yazid ibn Muawiyah was the caliphate, um, or was the cali- was the caliph, and um, yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty. I believe it's pretty well documented that he was uh, pretty oppressive and. Uh, Hussein, amongst others, um, amongst a couple of others, actually, were kind of, like, pushed to try to, like, agitate and resist. Um, basically, like, to make this very, like, long story, and it's a, it's a long story that's worth telling, but um, basically the way that we kind of talk about it, and especially within the Shia community, but I think more broadly it's, it's understood this way, that, like, uh, on the 10th of Muharram, um, Prophet or Imam Hussein was like uh, at this, you know, city in you know what's now Iraq um, called Karbala, and in Karbala, like he was confronted by Yazid's army, and um, you know, there was this constant, you know, how important Bayah is, um, that sort of like oath of allegiance is during this time of the Islamic, um, it, during this time in Islamic history. Um, so, anyways, like you know, Imam Hussein was requested to, like, give this, like, oath of allegiance to Yazid, and he refused to do so. And when he was confronted at the sands of Karbala, um, like, 
to do so, and he refused to do so, um, the army blocked water off, like, from his camp. And, I, and there's a reason why I'm going into this sort of detail. I think it goes into um, why I think it's important for us to, to acknowledge this. Um, but yeah, so, like, the water was blocked off for, like, three days, and then after that, this bloody battle occurred where, you know, he was killed. Um, you know, he was only there with 72 of his closest companions um, that were there willing to fight with him. Um, all of the men were like killed. They were beheaded. It was very brutal. Um, the women were taken as captives, as slaves afterwards. Um, they were brought back to Damascus, which is where um, Yazid's like courthouse was. So like there is, um, yeah, so this tragedy like has become a very, it's become a really interesting, like, it, it's interesting that this tragedy has occurred within Islamic history, but for now, or for some reason, it feels like it's been uh, associated as strictly like a Shia practice, where like Shia Muslims every single year on the 10th of Muharram, and especially during the first 10 days of that first Islamic month, will hold gatherings of communal grieving, right, where we come together and we like retell stories of what happened every single day, culminating to the 10th day. And, um, you know, we engage in these like acts of like weeping and reciting poetry. And um, there are some other, I think, controversial practices that tend to be associated with it. When I say controversial, I mean, like, when people hear about, you know, what Shia Muslims do, sometimes, like, I've, I've actually been in classrooms, and I've heard other students say that this is what their teacher will say, like, when they're teaching Sunni Shia, they'll be like, oh, and Shias engage in this practice of, like, self-flagellation, for example. Um, and they just reduce all of Shiism to, like, that practice, <laughs> you know, which is so strange. So it's become this sort of like, you know, I feel like that there's a way in which people look to this incident or this event as like a moment of schism, um, or a moment of like, um, you know, like Shia Muslims engaging in a practice that's like, not uh, acceptable within Islam, right? Um, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I kind of want to veer like away from that like centering the conversation on that and say that I think for me um like when I even when I'm describing this event I I have difficulty characterizing uh what happened at Garbala as an event um I feel like there is like there, there's this one saying that's attached to what happened it's called like every day is Ashura which is the 10th of Muharram and every land is Karbala. And no one ever had to explain that saying to me. It's like this idea that like, wherever you go, you see injustice is happening and that happens all the time. And so like, for me, Karbala like, is like a perspective. It's almost like a paradigm of how I see like injustice occurring everywhere. And it's so attached to my identity. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that there are like, obviously if you've been growing up engaging in these practices year after year after year as a Shia Muslim and a lot of Sunni Muslims that are also starting to get like really into this as well, where it's like, you know, understanding how powerful this event is and how much it's tied to our identities and how much it creates a consciousness around how we see justice and injustice, um, that when it's ignored by the broader Muslim community that like we're doing these practices or like when programs are held during the first 10 days of Muharram, um, you know, and like Shia Muslims obviously can't really engage in those or don't feel like they want to engage in those. I feel like those are moments where it's like inherently exclusive. And the reason why I think like it's important also to acknowledge it is because 
I actually genuinely believe that this is one of those stories that can be restorative. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like unique to like that. This is part of a shared history, you know, and like that when I say that I that every day is Ashura, every land is Garbala, and I see that injustice is everywhere. I mean, like everywhere, you know, like I, I went to Standing Rock, you know, over Thanksgiving break because it was like this idea of water made me think so much about like the fact that I cry every single year over like the Prophet's family being denied water, you know, mm-hmm. like for three days prior to a battle, right? And think about what's happening now with that. Um, thinking about like these like forms of structural oppression, you know, I think of things like white supremacy and patriarchy as like the Yazids and the thrones of today, you know, that's what Imam Hussein fought against. And so like, I just see this as a moment of like, you know, why not take out the time at the very least to like recognize how important this is for Shia Muslims, but also like, this is, these are moments in, in history that have been erased and that if brought back into the conversation, I wonder how much they could actually heal and be restorative. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. Given the conversation that we've had that, um, you know, we are talking about some very will, real ways that our communities aren't equipped to properly deal with difference um, within our communities. Yeah. Um, and when I when I say communities, I'm talking about our educational institutions. I'm talking about our mosques and Islamic centers. I'm talking about our MSAs. I'm talking about, you know, what whatever, you, however you want to interpret that. Um, are there, do you have any recommendations, just small steps that these communities, institutions, and leaders can take to being less Shia-phobic, you know, to contribute <laughs> less to Shia erasure and more inclusive to Muslims of all backgrounds? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I mean, the first one is is kind of the, the one that I mentioned about, like, just don't hold programs during the first 10 days of Muharram. Like, just don't. <laughs> just, like, stop it. Um, and kind of, like, recognize that that's making it inaccessible for, for Shia Muslims when, when that happens. Um, and I guess the other, like, other tips would be just to kind of, um, and, and I apologize because these aren't, like, very quick tips, but it kind of makes me think of, like, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience as well where someone who's, for example, white, right, and will approach you, like, I, as a white person, how do I handle, you know, like, <laughs> um, how do I, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, the, and the thing that's always, like, so frustrating about that question, um, aside from this, like, tokenizing uh, of it, is, is that it's, like, you can't always give, like, a concrete example and a response to that, because every institution is different, and your ability to maneuver every institution is different as well, right, so, like, I think that whenever I hear that question, for example, from a white person, it's always a matter of being like, okay, well, be reflective of your context, you know, in what places and in what spaces can you, like, help uplift a voice that is necessary to uplift, right? Like, how do you center that voice? Um, and so in some ways, like, I think that I don't have, like, a concrete, you know, the biggest concrete thing I have is, like, just don't have programs during the first 10 days, Um but to like center those voices, recognize that if you are going to engage in conversations of, you know, um, madhab differences, that you're conscious of representing that um, correctly. And also recognize that because there is a disproportional understanding of what sectarianism is, that that the person who is marginalized and who is a minority kind of has a burden to um, represent in a, in a different way, you know, and just kind of recognizing that, um, that that person is coming to the conversation with a different set of baggage. It's not just like you don't know, you don't know much about me. I don't know much about you. It's a little bit deeper than that. 
Um, I think it's really important that if we're going to get into like the theological stuff, that it's people who know what they're talking about um, in those in those conversations and people who are willing to engage that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think this kind of like was brought up towards the beginning, but of our conversation, but also like when we're thinking about these intersectional oppressions, like about racism and and classism and ableism um, that exists within our communities, to kind of consider Shia phobia. Um, as part of that intersection and being like conscious of like consciously trying to resist those moments when they come up. Um, and, and, you know, recognizing, for example, if, you know, you're not mentioning, um, sayings by certain people of the prophet's family, then, you know, chances are that like, you know, um, you have like a very, um, you know, we're operating under like this kind of very linear Islamic history that, um, you know, uh, that can be complicated, I guess, um, and to just kind of be conscious of, of what to do with that. So, I mean, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not like a, an Islamic scholar, so I can't like provide you with concrete steps, I think, in that direction. But yeah, being well informed yourself, being conscious of those things yourself, engaging yourself and just recognizing your power. If you're interested in learning more about some of the topics that we discussed today, our incredible guests recommended a few resources for you to check out. First, if you're like me and don't know much about these issues and are looking for a place to start, you might want to pick up Leslie Hazleton's book, After the Prophet, The Epic Story of the Shia-Sunni Split in Islam. Second, if you know some of the basics and just need a more in-depth analysis, Wilfred Madelung's The Succession to Muhammad, A Study of the Early Caliphate, might be the book for you. Third, David Coolidge published an article called 10 Tips to Make MSAs More Shia-Friendly. It's a great read not only if you're part of an MSA, but also if you lead a mosque, Islamic center, or an organization that serves or works with Muslims. And finally, we briefly mentioned another group at the beginning of this episode, the Ahmadiyya community. Alt-Muslima editor-in-chief Asma Odin recently published an article called Religious Authenticity in the Face of Anti-Muslim Sentiment, which provides an overview of some of the issues that the Ahmadiyya community faces. You can find links to all of these resources and more on our website. Until next time, this is Akhlas. And this is Mecca. <laughs>